Last time, we spoke about the rise of the Japanese Empire, a key player in the Pacific War, obviously. In this episode, we are going to focus on another key player in the Pacific War, all the way on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, that being the United States of America. What was the position of the United States after World War I? We mentioned the tense relationship Japan had with the US since the outcome of the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. But how did the US feel about Japan? Better yet, how did these two nations who arguably started relations on pretty good terms turn into such bitter rivals? What ultimately happened that set the course for both of these nations to succumb to one of the most brutal wars fought in history? This week's episode will be United States and the Pacific. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week. I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can even begin this episode, I want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about the history of America? I recommend their episode on the Battle of New Orleans, one of my favorites. Of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. And please subscribe to them. And if you want to continue helping us produce this content, please go to www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if you're still hungry for some more history-related content, go over to my channel, the Pacific War Channel, over on YouTube, where I have a few episodes such as How America Opened Up Japan. Give it a look. It'll mean a lot to me. Since its inception, one of the primary objectives of the United States has been to secure its commercial interests in the world, often without hesitation to use force. Force would be often used as a way to preserve its trade, and sometimes America would intervene in conflicts that impeded on its profits. Some have even gone as far as to describe the American experience as an imperial one. We sort of get a sense of this right at the offset of the founding of America, as Yale historian Paul Kennedy once said, quote, From the time the first settlers arrived in Virginia from England and started moving westward, this was an imperial nation, a conquering nation. End of quote. Hell, Noam Chomsky, I know, love him or hate him, well he wrote, the United States is one country that exists, as far as I know, and ever has, that was founded as an empire explicitly. Now a large part of this national drive for territorial expansion across the continental US was popularized by an ideology, that being Manifest Destiny. Boy oh boy, as a Canadian, it does feel a bit odd to basically be teaching American History 101, but anyways. Manifest Destiny is a rather complex idea to define. Historian William E. pointed out three key themes usually present within it, those being the virtue of the American people and their institutions, the mission to spread these institutions, thereby redeeming and remaking the world in the image of the United States, and the destiny under God to do this work. 
As part of my undergrad education within a Canadian university, we all had to take quite a few courses on American history. I always found Manifest Destiny to be portrayed as this romanticized good ideology that somehow got bastardized as, you know, the times moved on. In the beginning, it was envisioned as bringing the city upon the hill, that old Puritan John Withrop idea, to as many people as possible. Yet, in practice, this really turned into a bloody campaign, first against the aboriginals of North America, and eventually others outside the continent. Now, you would think this ideology would have ended when the Americans conquered the western coast and purchased Alaska from the Russians. However, it certainly did not. It merely evolved. What has always been taught to me as a student was sort of the partner or rather successor to Manifest Destiny, that being the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine began as an ideology that the United States should adopt a policy of isolation from war-torn Europe. This, however, began to evolve into the ideology that all of the American continent needed protection from the imperialism and destruction of the European powers. This meant that any intervention by external powers on the American continent was to be taken as hostility towards the United States of America. So in a lot of ways, you can see how the United States began this stance as an anti-colonial power, sort of a buffer against imperialism that was predominantly seen in Europe. However, this would change quite dramatically. The United States soon ventured out into the world, such as down south in Latin America, to forcefully open up trade. Now, while America was not creating any colonies, they certainly were expanding their markets, particularly in the case of Latin America, where multiple banana republics began to flourish. Now, as we turn our eyes to the Pacific, one of the more notable moments America began to dig its claws into something was in regards to China. You see, China underwent a brutal war known as the First Opium War of 1839 to 1842 against the Empire of Britain. The Chinese were defeated and humiliated by Britain, and were forced to sign the first of many more to come unequal treaties, this one being the Treaty of Nanking. Now, the United States was concerned with Britain's apparent dominance over China's trade. So President John Tyler sent Caleb Cushing to form its own treaty with the Qing Dynasty. The United States signed the Wangtia Treaty with the Qing Dynasty in 1844, and it was more or less the same as the Treaty of Nanking, i.e. granting America favored nation status to trade with China. As you can imagine, America followed in Britain's footsteps in regards to the opium trade. However, America was only able to trade inferior Turkish opium compared to Britain's Indian cultivated opium. As we said in former episodes, after opening up trade with China, America began to see the real potential of trade with Asia as a whole and moved to open trade with Japan and Korea. Thus, America signed the unequal treaties with Japan, such as the Convention of Kanagawa, followed up with the Treaty of Amity and Commerce after Commodore Matthew Perry opened up Japan. Korea would see the United States-Korean Treaty of 1882 to get its own unequal treaty situation. So America was really starting to make a name for itself in regards to trade expansion, but would even follow this up with some territorial gains. While America was busy expanding its trade in Asia, it began to annex multiple islands in the Pacific. Between 1857 to 1867, the United States annexed Baker Island, Howland Island, Jarvis Island, the Johnston Atoll, 
and the Midway Islands. These small islands would become very important during the Pacific War. One of America's most significant annexations was Hawaii, which it annexed in 1898. Something else of major significance occurred in 1898, and that was the outbreak of the Spanish-American War. There were quite a few reasons America and Spain found themselves going to war, but the main issue was that of Cuba. Cuba had undergone what is called the Ten Years' War from 1868 to 1878, which was her fight for independence from Spain. During the period after the American Civil War, the United States gradually began to monopolize the Cuban market, and by 1894, 90% of Cuba's exports went to the United States, which in return provided 40% of Cuba's imports. Despite the United States having economic power over Cuba, Spain still held political authority over Cuba. Now after the Ten Years' War, the Cuban War for Independence still raged on and in 1898, a riot occurred, led by the Cuban-Spanish loyalists in Havana. They destroyed the printing presses of four local newspapers, and this concerned the U.S., who feared for the lives of Americans living within Havana. In response, the U.S. sent the battleship USS Maine to Havana to ensure the safety of American citizens and interests. Key word, interests. Because in reality, they sent the warship to underscore Spain and promote reform. Well, the USS Maine was en route to Havana when on February the 15th at 9.30 p.m. she suffered a massive explosion. It killed 260 of her 355 crew, marking the greatest loss of life for American military in a single day since the defeat at Little Bighorn. Primary investigations thought it was a mine that blew up underneath the hull, but later investigations found it was most likely something on the ship that caused the explosion. No one really knows to this day. As you can imagine, the U.S. newspapers began to leap to conclusions that it was Spain to blame for all of this. This almost certainly was not true, as Spain literally had nothing to gain from such hostilities, but nonetheless, it put Cuba under the microscope of the American people. Action was demanded in some form, thus Congress gave the go to send American troops to Cuba to end the Civil War, fully knowing this would force a war between the United States and Spain. On April the 20th of 1898, an ultimatum was sent to Spain demanding it withdraw from Cuba. In response, Spain severed diplomatic relations with the United States, and the U.S. Navy began a blockade of Cuba, which led Spain to declare war on April the 23rd. Now here's the thing. While this entire debacle was technically over Cuba, two nations were at war with another, and one of those nations had a lot of colonial holdings ripe for the plucking. Spain had held the Philippines for 333 years, and on May the 1st of 1898, Commodore George Dewey took the U.S. Asiatic Squadron to attack the Spanish Squadron of Admiral Patricio Montoyo, who was defending it. What occurred was called the Battle of Manila Bay, and the Spanish Squadron was hopelessly outgunned. The U.S. Navy had four cruisers and two gunboats versus the Spanish force of six cruisers and one gunboat. However, when the U.S. ships engaged the Spanish and their coastal batteries, there was a huge discrepancy in their range of fire. The Spanish ships fired alongside their coastal batteries with all shells falling short. The Americans swung in, opening fire with their port guns, and turned back to fire with their starboard guns over five times at a range of 5,000 yards. 
The Spanish continuously fired back, but they could not match the range of the Americans. The Spanish would have five cruisers sunk, two others scuttled, and around 270 casualties, including 77 deaths. The Americans allegedly suffered only nine casualties, maybe one death due to illness. The Americans had defeated the Spanish squadron in a matter of hours. Boom. The Americans proceeded to transport a Filipino resistance leader named Emilio Iguinaldo, who leads Philippine forces and by June the 12th proclaims the independence of the Philippines from Spain. Unfortunately, America had landed 11,000 of its own troops in the Philippines who would butt heads with the Filipino forces, ending their collaboration and starting the Philippine-American War. That conflict would go on until 1902, with the U.S. forces fighting the new Philippine Republic. It would claim the lives of over 200,000 Filipino civilians, mostly due to famine and disease. The war was a gruesome one. Marked with a lot of guerrilla warfare, the United States would have something like 15,000 deaths, and the Filipino forces would lose something like 20,000. Yet before all of this, the Spanish capitulated formally to the United States on August the 14th of 1898, accepting to surrender and declaring the establishment of the U.S. occupation. Another Spanish possession ripe for plucking was Guam, and on June the 20th, the USS Charleston, alongside three transports, invaded the small island. The Charleston fired a few shells at the abandoned fort called Fort Santa Cruz. No shots were returned, and it turned out only two local officials on Guam did not even realize that they were at war. They figured the shots had been some sort of salute. In fact, it's alleged the two officials came out to the USS Charleston to apologize for their inability to return the salute as they were out of gunpowder. The captain of the Charleston, Henry Glass, notified them that they were at war, but no Spanish warships had been to the island in almost two years. So, Captain Henry Glass proceeded to meet the Spanish governor and arranged their surrender, taking a small garrison of 54 Spanish infantrymen prisoner. A rather bloodless conflict, to say the least. The most important conflict of this war would be found in Cuba. The Americans landed the 1st Marine Battalion at Fisherman's Point in Guantanamo Bay on June the 10th. This was followed by the 5th Army Corps under General William R. Shafter, landing at Daiquiri and Siboney on June the 22nd and the 24th. It's important to note a lot of these American forces were veterans of the U.S. Civil War and thus used Civil War tactics like using skirmishers at the head of their advancing forces. At first, the Spanish managed to ambush some of the U.S. forces and with quite a lot of success. Then on July the 1st, a force of 15,000 Americans, including the famous Rough Riders, God do I love them, and with them, one of the greatest presidents of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, attacked an entrenched force of 1,270 Spaniards. What occurred was the Battle of El Cani and the Battle of San Juan Hill just outside Santiago. At El Cani, over 500 Spanish soldiers held out for 12 hours against almost 7,000 American forces. The Spanish managed to kill 81 and wounded up to 360 Americans, while receiving 38 deaths and 138 wounded themselves. They ultimately ran out of ammunition and had to give up. One U.S. company, the 2nd Massachusetts, were equipped with antiquated black powder single-shot Springfield rifles, and they had a hell of an experience under Spanish gunfire, as they were firing back with M1893 Mausers and Remington Rolling Block rifles. 
According to one Frederick E. Pierce, a trooper with this company, he said, quote, We received such a shower of bullets that it seemed at one time as if the company must be wiped out of existence. End of quote. Because of the unequal contest, the Second Massachusetts were relieved by troops armed with more modern weaponry. Quite a conundrum. Now the most famous battle is that of San Juan Hill, which would see the 5th Army Corps totaling something like 8,500 men facing a Spanish force of around 500 on a fort atop of the hill, led by Arsenio Pombo. The Americans dispatched Gatling gun detachments, which moved with soldiers assaulting the hill, so you gotta try and visualize this. Around three Gatling guns continuously firing upon the Spanish as US forces are storming the hill. It was a pretty epic battle to say the least. Apparently a lot of the Spanish defenders fled their trenches to escape the Gatling gun fire alone. The American forces break into a charge once they are about 150 yards from the crest of the hill. The Americans take the fort and replace the Spanish flag with the American flag. The Spanish try to counterattack later that day, but now these deadly Gatling guns are on top of the hill firing downwards upon them. Eesh. Meanwhile, the awesome Rough Riders are assaulting another hill called Kettle Hill, also being supported by three Gatling guns. A trooper named Jesse D. Longden was accompanied by one Colonel Theodore Roosevelt during the assault on Kettle Hill, and he said of the performance of the Gatling guns and their commander, Lieutenant John H. Parker, quote, We were exposed to the Spanish fire, but there was very little because just before we started, why the Gatling guns opened up on the bottom of the hill and everybody yelled, the Gatlins, the Gatlins, and away we went. The Gatlins just infiltrated the top of those trenches. We'd never been able to take Kettle Hill if it hadn't been for the Parker's Gatlin guns. End of quote. An estimated 18,000 rounds were fired from those Gatlin guns in eight and a half minutes upon the Spanish defensive lines atop of the hills. The Spaniards were cut to pieces, or they fled their trenches. Those who did try to fire back had little hope of doing much more than getting shot, because it was just mayhem. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt gave credit for such a successful capture of the hills to one of the men firing from those very Gatling guns, stating, quote, I think Parker deserved rather more credit than any other man in the entire campaign. He had the rare good judgment and foresight to see the possibilities of the machine guns. He then, by his own exertions, got to the front and proved that it could do invaluable work on the field of battle as much in attack as in defense. While thus firing, there suddenly smote on our ears a peculiar drumming sound. One or two of our men cried out, the Spanish machine guns. But after listening a moment, I leapt up to my feet and called, it's the Gatlins, men, our Gatlins. Immediately the troopers began to cheer lustily, for the sound was most inspiring. End of quote. Now under this continuous fire, Another famous American, First Lieutenant John Blackjack Pershing, a man who would later reach the highest rank ever held in the U.S. Army by a living officer, well, he was there also, advancing, and this was what he had to say about the event. Quote, The entire command moved forward as coolly as though the buzzing of bullets was nothing more than humming of bees. White regiments, black regiments, regulars, and rough riders, representing the young manhood of the North and the South, 
fought shoulder to shoulder, unmindful of race or color, unmindful of whether commanded by ex-Confederate or not, and mindful only of their common duty as Americans. End of quote. It's certainly interesting how the U.S. Civil War creeps into this war so much. Anyways, the Americans reach the top of Kettle Hill, and some have to resort to hand-to-hand combat, but eventually the Spanish retreat. You know, you get the famous picture of Theodore Roosevelt with the Rough Riders on top of the hill at this point, by the way. It's a really interesting photograph. I recommend looking at it. It gives you sort of a feeling of what these guys were like. They come off more like frontiersmen than soldiers, almost cowboy-like, products of a time long forgotten. The Spanish will counterattack, but yet again these Gatling guns are placed atop Kettle Hill and rain hell upon them. Despite everything, the way I describe it, the Americans take a lot more casualties than the Spanish. After all, they were charging up fortified hills. The Americans took over 1,000 casualties, with 144 deaths. For the Spanish, it's like 360 casualties, with 114 dead. Now after all of this, the Americans and Cuban revolutionaries, let's not forget them, they siege Santiago. There was a bloody strangling of the city, with trenches being dug closer and closer to the Spanish positions. Simultaneously, there is also a naval battle called the Battle of Santiago de Cuba on July the 3rd, where four U.S. battleships and two cruisers attack four Spanish cruisers and two destroyers. It starts off as a blockade by the Americans with just a few skirmishes, not amounting to so much. Then the Spanish squadron, commanded by Admiral Pascual Severa, was biding his time, hoping for bad weather to scatter the U.S. ships so he could make a more favorable engagement. Well, unfortunately, time was not on his side. As we mentioned, the ongoing siege of Santiago, Severa found himself unable to remain safely in the harbor, and the governor, General Ramon Blanco Yerenas, was quoted to say to him, quote, It is better for the honor of our arms that the squadron perish in battle. End of quote. So the Spanish squadron makes a break for it on July the 3rd at 9 a.m., thinking the Americans would be busy with religious services. Well, unfortunately for the Spaniards, a U.S. ship sees them getting ready to break out as a Spanish ship column makes its way around K. Smith. And they are met with the broadside of all the U.S. warships in what is described as a hail of fire. Without much choice, some of the Spanish ships attack the U.S. ships, some even trying to collide into them, trying to cover the escape of the other half of their squadron. This naval battle was what some Americans might have described as a turkey shoot. All six of the Spanish warships are sunk. 343 sailors die, with almost 2,000 captured. The Americans pay for this with a single death and one wounded. After this, Cuba is effectively occupied by the Americans, who pull out most of their forces, because this whole time, both Spanish and Americans are falling victim to disease and heat stroke, as you can imagine. Regardless, the U.S. forces leave many black volunteers in Cuba, thinking that their race would protect them from the disease and harsh climate. Well, it turns out something like yellow fever does not have any preferences based on race, and quite a lot of them will suffer from this disease. Another campaign was enacted during this war, 
over at Puerto Rico, which was blockaded by 12 U.S. warships as early as May. Landing offensives commenced in June, and in a similar fashion to what happened in Cuba, the Spanish eventually lose their fortified positions in mid-August. The Spanish played around with the idea of sending a fleet to the Philippines, but then they cut this idea off when they believed the American Navy might threaten their homeland's coast. Boy, if that happened, it would not have gone too well for the Americans. With the major defeats of both Cuba and the Philippines, and its two fleets completely destroyed, Spain sued for peace. The war took 16 weeks, and ambassador to London, John Hay, wrote to his friend, Theodore Roosevelt, declaring the event to be a, quote, splendid little war. The war was showcased heavily in the press, showing African and white Americans fighting side by side against a common foe, an attempt to heal the recent scars of the U.S. Civil War. Two major things really came about from this war. One, America emerged as this image as the defender of democracy that we see to this very day. And two, the relationship between the United States and Cuba would be severely altered. Spain had been declining as an empire for quite some time, and this war was felt as a national trauma. The Treaty of Paris, signed in 1898, saw the United States annexing Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Guam. And yes, the notion of imperialism was not lost on the people of America, who debated hotly if they had not become the thing they vowed they would never be. Spain relinquished sovereignty over Cuba, and as the empire of Spain ended, thus the United States emerged as a true world power and increased their economic dominance in the Pacific. And so, the Philippines and Guam became quasi-colonies of America, but they did not enjoy the full constitutional rights under American rule. This newborn American imperialism would then grab the eastern island of Samoa and those of Hawaii. While America joined in the unequal treaties against China, Japan, and East Asia, they also began helping them with their modernization as a way to counterweight against the European powers. As a result of this, America was in a pretty good standing with the Qing Dynasty and the newly emerged Meiji government of Japan. The U.S. would often promise to intercede on their behalf if they faced European aggression. As time moved on, however, it became apparent the Japanese Empire held imperial ambitions in places like China. America sought to protect its own economic interest in China, and thus both the United States and Japan would soon be sent on a course for turmoil. During the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895, it was the United States who helped broker a peace between the two nations, with the Treaty of Shimonoseki being the end result. By the way, if you'd like to know more about the First Sino-Japanese War, I happen to have made a two-part series on the entire event over at my channel, the Pacific War Channel. It's one of the most tragic wars to ever occur, and there's a lot of tales of corruption, particularly for the Qing Dynasty. It makes for quite an interesting event. If you want to go learn about it, go check it out. It would help out my channel. Now what happened after the First Sino-Japanese War was the triple intervention from France, Germany, and Russia. America refused to join the triple intervention and held its position at that time as the friendliest powerful nation to Japan. But in 1899, there was a scramble for concessions within China. The great powers of Europe were quite literally carving their spheres of influence all over the ailing Qing dynasty, 
and this worried the United States. The United States sought to preserve its economic interest within China, and thus Secretary of State John Hay established a new American foreign policy, which we now call the Open Door Policy. The policy established in 1899 that China's system of trade would remain open to all countries equally. It was also used to buffer against the European powers competing for parts of China. Under the policy, none would have exclusive rights in any specific area. Now, this skillful articulation on the part of the United States did slow imperial expansion within China during and after the Boxer Rebellion. It did not, however, do enough to thwart the outbreak of the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. Similar to the First Sino-Japanese War, America found itself intervening to help negotiate a peace amongst two nations. This time, however, it would have dire consequences. It was the Japanese who approached U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt to help mediate a peace between them and the Russians. They sought out Roosevelt because he was one of the few who expressed pro-Japanese stances at the beginning of the war. When the Japanese opened up the war with a surprise attack on the Russian Navy anchored at Port Arthur, Roosevelt allegedly admired the sneak attack and was quoted to say, quote, I was thoroughly well pleased with the Japanese victory. End of quote. However, as the war progressed, Roosevelt became concerned with the strengthening military power of Japan and how this might have an impact on U.S. economic interest in Asia. Negotiations were to take place in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in August of 1905. It was self-evident that Japan came to the negotiating table in a position of superiority as its military was undefeated and it destroyed not one, but two Russian fleets. Despite this, Tsar Nicholas II forbid his delegates to agree to any tutorial concessions, reparations, or limitations on the deployment of Russian forces in the Far East. Not a lot of room to work with. The Japanese immediately demanded the Russian port of Vladivostok until Roosevelt was able to convince them to give up this claim. Although the Russians adamantly made it clear no indemnity payments would be made, Roosevelt tried to smooth this over by merely calling them reimbursements. Then the Japanese argued they deserved the entire Sakhalin Island as they had conquered it during the war. The Russians countered by giving them only trade rights to the island. During this time, Roosevelt wrote to Senator Henry Cabot Lodge that he found the Russians to be, quote, treacherous, shifty, and that the Japanese are entirely selfish without a veneer of courtesy. End of quote. The Sakhalin ordeal alone eventually forced Roosevelt to write to Tsar Nicholas II on the matter, and it is as follows, quote, I earnestly ask your majesty to believe in what I am about to say and to advise. I speak as the earnest well-wisher of Russia, and I give you the advice I should give if I were a Russian patriot and a statesman. As Sakhalin is an island, it is, humanly speaking, impossible that the Russians should reconquer it in the view of the disaster to their navy. It seems to me that every consideration of national self-interest, of military expedience, and of broad humanity makes its amenity wise and right for Russia to conclude peace substantially along these lines, and it is my hope that your majesty will take this view. At the same time, he also told the Japanese diplomats this, quote, 
Ethically, it seems to me that Japan owes a duty to the world at this crisis. The civilized world looks to her to make peace. The nations believe in her. Let her show her leadership in matters ethical no less than matters military. The appeal is made to her in the name of all that is lofty and noble, and to this appeal, I hope she will not be deaf. End of quote. Well, the Japanese kept pressing for indemnity payments, and Roosevelt eventually wrote to his son Kermit, quote, The Japanese ask too much, but the Russians are ten times worse than the Japs because they are so stupid and won't tell the truth. End of quote. Eventually, Roosevelt got the Russians to agree to split half of the island of Sakhalin and for Japan to withdraw her demands for indemnity payments. Thus, in the end, the Treaty of Portsmouth saw the recognition of Japan's claims to Korea, the evacuation of Russian forces from Manchuria, Russia seized its leases in southern Manchuria and the Liandong Peninsula, such as at Port Arthur and Dalian, to Japan, and turned over the South Manchurian Railway and some mining concessions. Now, while the treaty resulted in confirmation of Japan's emergence as the power in East Asia, this did not all go well with the Japanese public. The Japanese public knew full well of the numerous military victories they had during the war and felt the economic and human life cost of the war. The Japanese expected reparations to help families recover from lost fathers and sons and to relieve the burden of heavy taxation. Without them, social unrest erupted in the country. What occurred has become known as the Haibaya Riots, Angry mobs of citizens marched through the streets, damaging government buildings and several American-owned establishments, like missionary churches. 17 people were killed, 2,000 were arrested, and over 350 buildings were damaged. The Japanese Prime Minister, Katsura Taro, and his cabinet collapsed by January the 7th of 1906. Why did they march like this? Well, they felt their government was far too lenient on the Russians and that the terms of the treaty were humiliating. America, and more specifically, Theodore Roosevelt, were seen as villains who stole victory from Japan, much the same way the triple intervention during the First Sino-Japanese War had done. From this point on, Japan's relationship went from very friendly with the United States to viewing them as a rival, only overcome by Japan's rivalry with Russia. From this point on, the Roosevelt administration began to improve defenses for its Pacific holdings. They fortified Guam, Pearl Harbor, and built up the docks in San Francisco. By 1907, the U.S. Navy built 29 vessels against the 13 ships under construction by Japan. The purpose, of course, was to have a Pacific Navy capable of defending the Pacific possessions against Japan. Roosevelt also made great efforts to improve relations with the Japanese, but despite minor successes, he would have it all come to a crumbling halt after the outcome of World War I. The United States and Japan emerged as great powers, playing key roles in collapsing the German Empire, but despite President Woodrow Wilson's goal of world peace with the establishment of the League of Nations, his foreign policy in the Pacific would be quite poor and inconsistent. The U.S., if you remember, opposed the 21 demands Japan pressed to China, and it really did not sit well with them. Then, in the climax of the Treaty of Versailles, 
It was Woodrow Wilson who rejected the racial equality proposal of Japan. So from this point on, Japan would self-alienate from the rest of the great powers and view the United States as its number one adversary, well, besides Russia. Japan would see an enormous rise of nationalism and anti-American sentiment. Overall, Wilson maintained the open-door policy towards China and would support democracy and self-determination in Asia and the Pacific. Wilson even went as far as to propose the decolonization of the Philippines, but with the US and Japan the only key players in the Pacific, well, this would not come to pass. To preserve the open-door policy, Americans would now have to uphold the balance of power in the Asia-Pacific against Japan, and to make matters worse, the Republic of China was fractured during this time. Their leader, Yan Shikai, during a short reign over the Republic, managed it by cutting back on government institutions and allowing military leaders to govern provinces. Now, Yan Shikai died in 1916, and when he does, the system he built literally forms the warlord era of China, going on from 1916 all the way to 1928. These military leaders, who were something like governors back then, well now, they're warlords, who control vast regions of China. And although the Central Republic's government continues after Yuan Shikai, its authority was based on which warlords allied themselves to it at any given time. Basically, warlords all fought for their own interests, and a national government was really just for show. So for America, how does one deal with a fractured nation run by a bunch of warlords, it's not an easy task, to say the least. When America came into possession of the Philippines, they quickly realized its vulnerability to a Japanese invasion. What comes about from the end of the Theodore Roosevelt years all the way until the Pacific War is plans to thwart the Japanese Empire in case of the outbreak of war. Codenamed War Plan Orange was a series of US military plans for dealing with the possible war against Japan. There was an assortment of these colored coded plans, by the way, really fascinating, with uh, interesting scenarios to say the least. What if a Boxer Rebellion type situation arises again in China? Well, they had War Plan Yellow. It involved the use of chemical weapons, if necessary, in places like Shanghai. Oh my god. What if France gets too pushy in the Caribbean colonies? Well, they had War Plan Gold. Hell. I myself am a Canadian and loved learning about this one. There was a war plan red against the British Empire and it had multiple other color-coded plans such as crimson for Canada, ruby for India, scarlet for Australia, garnet for New Zealand, and emerald for Ireland. Go figure. So I guess if us Canadians got a little too frisky, well the Americans would just stomp right over us like they did in 1812. Oh wait, that didn't go so well. These are just jokes, people. Calm down. Anyways, War Plan Orange is a particularly important one, as it did come to fruition. Though it went through some drastic changes multiple times between the years of 1919 to 1941. Hell, right before the Pacific War, major alterations were brought forward by someone, I don't know, one Douglas MacArthur, which would result in an absolute catastrophe. Originally, it was conceived on the anticipation of a Japanese blockade of the Philippines and other U.S. outposts in the Western Pacific. The plan was to hold out as long as possible while the Pacific Fleet got its strength together at bases on the eastern U.S. coast or Hawaii, 
and then the fleet would sail to the Western Pacific to relieve these American forces. Then after all of that, the U.S. Pacific Fleet would have itself a nice decisive naval victory over the IJN and blockade the Japanese home islands. Pretty simple stuff. So as you can imagine, for Warplan Orange to succeed, well, two things are vitally important. The first thing is the U.S. possessions in the Pacific need to be fortified enough to prolong the Japanese from fully occupying them. They don't need to defeat the Japanese, just hinder their operations long enough so the U.S. Pacific Fleet can come and rescue them and then crush the IGN. The second important part of all of this is the U.S. Pacific Fleet will have to be on par with the IGN, if not stronger. A lot of treaties would come into play to help with these matters, by the way. One of the first major ones is the U.S. needs to break up the Anglo-Japanese Alliance Treaty. Funny enough, if the British and Japanese remained allies, America had War Plan Red-Orange, which would have been a war fought simultaneously against Britain and Japan, which the U.S. did not have any resources to do at the time. Thus, breaking that alliance really had to happen. So the U.S. does what it had to to break the alliance, and now Japan is completely isolated and arguably much more geared to be aggressive towards the United States, almost like creating your own adversary. Next came the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922, which was signed by Britain, the United States, Japan, France, and Italy. This treaty put limitations on the number of warships you could build that were 10,000 tons of displacement or more. So we are talking about battleships, battle cruisers, and large aircraft carriers. You might be led to think, but this restricts everybody, so how does this help someone like the United States? Well, the United States has something that Japan never would have, its productivity. If Japan and the United States went to war on equal footing with their navies, well, the U.S. would be capable of rebuilding lost ships of any type at the blink of an eye. But the Japanese, this would be impossible for them. The IGN spent decades building itself up. Japan simply did not ever have the vast amounts of resources necessary to build a fleet quickly, nor would it have the oil to sustain one. By the way, the Japanese did not sign all of this all willy-nilly. They denounced it first, and, you know, at the offset, they knew their productive capabilities were not on par with a nation like the United States. As Admiral Isoruko Yamamoto said of the U.S., quote, Anyone who has seen the auto factories in Detroit and the oil fields in Texas knows that Japan lacks the power for a naval race with America. The ratio, uh, he's speaking about the naval treaties, works well for Japan. It is a treaty to restrict the other parties. Yamamoto would go on to propose that rather than a spree of construction, the IGN would require some other means of defeating the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Now, the treaty can be argued to be a huge success, allowing a nation like the U.S. to hold naval superiority over the Japanese and smoothing over Japanese aggression against China for the remainder of the decade. However, something else was included in the treaty, the prohibition of any future British, Japanese, or American fortifications or naval bases in the Pacific Ocean that would have a disastrous effect on a little thing I want to call War Plan Orange. It goes without saying, the Washington Naval Treaty further provoked the rise of ultranationalism and a sort of what I guess you can call fascist regime in the Empire of Japan. Despite all of this, the war plans in case of Japanese aggression, while the United States would spend the remainder of the decade trying to financially support Japan to heal their poor relationship. 
Then came another, the London Naval Treaty of 1930, which was an extension of the former, putting more limitations now on cruisers and submarines. Basically, many issues were argued over when the Washington Naval Treaty was being formed, and in the end, they had left out cruisers and submarines. Well, now those got limited. Adding to this was the Wall Street Crash of 1929, beginning the Great Depression. What followed was a time of high unemployment, poverty, deflation, emigration, and a general economic crisis being managed quite poorly by the government of President Herbert Hoover. Then came the 1932 election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the establishment of the famous New Deal Plan. The New Deal was a series of programs, public work projects, new regulations, and extreme financial reforms. Through these efforts, the U.S. economy gradually began to recover, but the effects of the Great Depression would still be felt for many years to come. In 1937, the U.S. economy would unexpectedly fall again with a renewed decline of production, unemployment, and profits, so FDR launched a rather rhetorical campaign against the monopoly of power and proclaimed a $5 billion spending program to increase mass purchasing power. To give you an idea, the unemployment jumped from 14.3% to 19% between May and June of 1937. My god, that's a lot. And this all was most likely due to nothing more than the rhythms of the business cycle, so to say, but opponents to FDR tried to use this moment to get rid of him. So, love him or hate him, John Mayard Keynes was someone who did not think the New Deal under FDR ended the Great Depression and said, quote, it is, it seems, politically impossible for a capitalist democracy to organize expenditure on the scale necessary to make the grand experiments which would prove my case, except in war conditions. End of quote. Well, luckily, the 1937 recession had ended by 1939, and the American economy was recovering once more. Back in the Pacific, the economic turmoil in the United States coincided with the consolidation of Japan's ultra-nationalism, which launched a successful invasion of Manchuria following the Mukden incident. The United States led the movement to investigate the situation which became known as the Lytton Commission, headed by Lord Lytton and included correspondence from Germany, Italy, France, and the United States. Their report stated that the operations of the IGA following the Mukden incident could not be regarded as legitimate self-defense. They followed this up, stating the new state of Manchu Kuo could not have been formed without the presence of Japanese troops, and that it had no Chinese support, and thus it was not part of a genuine, spontaneous, independent movement. Yeah, no kidding. Yet despite all of this, the report did not address its one chief goal. What caused the Mukden incident? In the end, a Geneva correspondent was quoted to say, quote, The report, which was approved unanimously, proposes that China and Japan shall be given three months in which to accept or reject the recommendations. It is the hope that the parties will agree to direct negotiations. The French correspondent attached to the commission this, and it is as follows, quote, the report insists on the withdrawal of Japanese troops within the South Manchurian Railway Zone and recommends the establishment of an organization under the sovereignty of China to deal with the conditions in Manchuria, taking due action of the rights and interests of Japan, and the formation of a committee of negotiation for the application of these and other recommendations. 
End of quote. Well, then the report was made public. The Japanese government extended its official diplomatic recognition of Manchukuo, and so the findings of the report were announced before the General Assembly of the League of Nations, and the motion was raised to condemn Japan as an aggressor in 1933. Yosuke Matsuoka, the Japanese delegate, he simply walked out. Japan would give its formal notice of its withdrawal from the League of Nations on March the 27th of 1933. This was all filmed by the way. You can go over on YouTube right now and watch the event. It happened in the General Assembly of the League of Nations and I highly recommend it. It is it's quite something to see. Words can't express the full feeling or the emotions showcased on film, you know. So it goes without saying, the open door policy was falling apart. FDR was pretty preoccupied with domestic programs, and who can blame him? But this all resulted in the Japanese basically having a free hand in China. Furthermore, the US Navy was not in a good state. Hell, the Asiatic Squadron was still using warships all the way going back to the Great War. Both Hoover and FDR's administrations cut down on the Army and Navy's budgets. During Hoover's years, not a single warship was even constructed. In response to all of this, Congressman Carl Vinson, sort of a champion of a stronger navy, worked in Roosevelt's administration to push for naval buildups and to promote a jobs program. Well, this certainly met FDR's policies, so it was a go. What came about is known as the Vinson Acts. There was a few of them, and they gradually increased the naval buildup all the way up to the London Treaty limits by 1942. With the Navy looking a bit better, came more confidence for Warplan Orange, which was great, because Japan did not just leave the League of Nations, it also withdrew from the London Naval Act. Japan in the late 1930s and early 1940s held considerable superiority in the Pacific. Would the naval buildup be enough to meet the demands of Warplan Orange? Only time would tell. I would like to take this time to remind all of you this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if you're still hungry after that, please go give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. I am quite a small channel. Join us next time for what might be the longest episode that will ever be part of this Pacific War podcast series. Seriously, I have numb fingers from all the typing. Next time, we're going to be looking at the war in China, better known as the Second Sino-Japanese War. Oh, and I can assure you, it's going to be gruesome and bloody.